Well, good morning again, Night Street family. Uh, welcome those of you who are joining us a little bit later today. And as the weather is kind of getting warmer and we're quickly progressing to the summer, um, I want to start a new sermon series with you all titled Voices from the Wilderness, where we explore various Old Testament prophets and how these voices from the wilderness call all of the children to God to grow in holiness. And to start off the series, I want to speak about my favorite Old Testament scene and verses. But before we kind of get there, um, I also want to talk briefly about one of my favorite movies of all time as well. Now, I remember shortly after high school finished, I was trying to watch one movie every single night because um, there's nothing to do after I graduate from high school and wait for college. And so I'd watch one movie every night from IMDb's top 100 list. And I came across some incredible movies, and one of them was Schindler's List, which has been one of the most transformative movies I've ever watched because it demonstrates the power of goodness, virtue, and honor in a period of unspeakable misery, tragedy, and evil. But the basic plot of the movie is that Oskar Schindler, a member of the German Nazi party, he moves to Krakow, Poland, to start a business with the hopes of making riches. And Krakow was not just a place to do business, but it was also one of the five major metropolitan Nazi ghettos created by Germany. Um, it was also the site of the co a concentration camp as well. And as time passes, as Schindler does business, but at the same time as he sees the absolute barbarism, the absolute evil that is taking a place around him, his focus begins to shift. Rather than trying to start a successful business, rather than trying to make as much money as possible, he decides instead to save as many lives as he possibly can by employing Jewish people so that they would not be sent to concentration camps. And it's always interesting that when we delve and look into the concept of evil, we realize quickly that when human beings, all of us, when we are confronted with what is truly evil by nature, we all realize that this is not the way that things should be. For example, when we see school shootings, we all know that such tragedies should not happen. When we see drugs being sold in our communities, we also know that these things shouldn't happen either. And so despite our sinful nature, we are also created in the image of God. By nature, we understand what is truly good and we're all motivated to do good when confronted with evil. And so when Schindler, when he witnesses these awful acts of violence and brutality, when he comes face to face with evil, Schindler also realizes this is not the way things should be. And motivated by goodness, motivated by virtue, Schindler risks his life and his business to protect the Jewish people. And so what does he do? He builds a factory strictly for the Jewish people. And he protects them but, and allows them to practice the Sabbath and all other religious festivals that they held. He even bribes Nazi officials to kind of turn a blind eye or to redirect Jewish prisoners uh, from being sent to Auschwitz and into his factory instead. And by 1945, as Schindler just runs out of money, he has zero dollars left in the bank, Germany surrendered. And the Jewish workers give Schindler an engraved ring that said, whoever saves one life saves the entire world. 
And receiving this gift, Schindler, he breaks down in tears, and he only wishes one thing. He wishes that he could have done more, that he could have saved more and more lives. In today's passage we're about to read, we will see a similar theme of transformation when confronted with something that is absolutely overwhelming. In the case of Oscar Schindler, that is the confrontation with absolute evil, but in our passage that we're about to read for Isaiah, rather than experiencing absolute evil, he's about to experience the overwhelming holiness of God, and it is this experience of holiness that is about to move Isaiah into action. And so let's take a look at our passage today, which comes from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on the throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their face. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Just as we sung earlier. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hands, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it, he touched my mouth and said, See this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. As we kind of pivot from the story of Oscar Schindler and immerse ourselves in the passage instead from Isaiah, uh, we find ourselves not in the somber depths of a Nazi concentration camp, but rather we find ourselves in this glorious and awe-inspiring splendor of God's holy temple. Yet, despite the difference, there's a similarity between these two. Just as Schindler's world was turned upside down by the reality of the Holocaust, Isaiah is about to find his world turned upside down as well not by confrontation with human sin and evil, but with an encounter with God's holiness. In verses 1 to 5, we read about Isaiah's vision of God. He sees the Lord on a throne, high and exalted. And every time I I come across this passage, I kind of just like to close my eyes and just imagine it, right? To see the Lord, the creator of the universe, the author of life itself, seated in a position of power and authority the very essence of holiness, perfection, and righteousness before Isaiah's eyes. But the scene doesn't stop there either. Isaiah also begins to see these heavenly beings, each with six wings, hovering around the throne. And from there, Isaiah hears them singing and praising God, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth, not just the temple, the whole earth is full of his glory. These words ring in Isaiah's ear, and then the ground begins to shake, and the temple is filled with smoke as God's holiness fills every single square inch of this holy temple. And this vivid display of God's holiness leaves Isaiah completely overwhelmed. Confronted with such holiness, 
Isaiah realizes not just his own insignificance, but he comes to an acute awareness of his sinfulness when face to face with such a tremendously holy and infinitely good God. And it's easy to kind of read this and gloss over the magnitude of what is happening here, but let's just pause for a moment and really let that kind of sink in. Isaiah is witnessing the pure, unadulterated holiness of God. And the holiness of God is not just about moral purity or righteousness, but it's about God's otherness, God's distinctiveness. God is not just a better version of us. He's completely different, completely perfect, completely holy. And as Isaiah encounters God who is completely unimaginable, it instantly changes his life. Just like Schindler, who after seeing the atrocities of the Holocaust just couldn't go on living the same way, Isaiah, after seeing God's holiness, can't remain the same either. When you truly experience the majesty of God, the otherworldliness of God, the perfection of God, you cannot help but to see your own inadequacy. And this leads Isaiah to confess what I think is one of the most beautiful verses in the Old Testament. As Isaiah says to God, woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among of people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Interesting fact, if you read, if you read that passage again, you see the angels even covering their eyes with their wings because they cannot look at God's holiness. But yet here is Isaiah, a prophet of God, a man who we might think has it all together spiritually, being brought to his knees as he encounters and experiences God's holiness. He sees his own inadequacy. He sees his own sinfulness and the sinfulness of his people, the Israelites. Isaiah's encounter with God leads to him making one of the most profound confessions of sin in the entire Old Testament. In a similar way, when we truly see God's holiness, when we understand how truly other and how truly perfect God is, we too, like Isaiah, we are also led into a place of confession. We come to understand our own sinfulness in light of God's perfection. We are moved to say for ourselves, woe to me, I am ruined. Because despite the depths of our sins, we see this vast chasm between us and God separated by our sinfulness. And throughout the Old Testament, we know that anyone who came too close to God's holiness, they, they simply died, they just simply perished. And to give an analogy, the sun is warm, you know, 93.9 million miles away, but if you come too close to the sun, you'd be simply reduced to ash, just like God's holiness. But there is good news. Just like Isaiah, our confession is not the end of the story, but it's actually the beginning of our transformation. In spite of God being the God of absolute holiness and justice, he is also at the same time a God of grace and a God of mercy. And most importantly, he is also the God whom we call as our Father. As we move forward into verses six to seven, we still find Isaiah in the temple absolutely you know, shaken by his encounter with God's holiness and by his recognition of his own sinfulness. And in this passage, we actually reach a very critical point. 
Earlier, I mentioned that anyone who came too close to God's holiness simply died. They simply perished. But how will God respond to Isaiah's confession? And we actually see the answer immediately. Without delay, without hesitation, one of the seraphim flies to Isaiah with a live coal taken from the altar. And this is not just some ordinary coal, but it's a coal taken from God's altar, a symbol of divine purification. And as the coal touches Isaiah's mouth, the angelic being declares, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt, your sin has been atoned for. Now, if we look at the surface, all we see is just, you know, some guy placing coal on Isaiah's lips. A little bizarre, sure. But when we look underneath the surface, we see that this is a deeply symbolic action that speaks to the heart of God's character. Absolutely. God is holy, but God is also still simultaneously the God of grace. Isaiah confessed his sin, and immediately God responds with forgiveness and cleansing. Isaiah doesn't have to earn it. Isaiah doesn't even have to wait for God's forgiveness. God simply and freely gives. And this is what God's grace truly looks like. God, out of his goodness, chooses to forgive. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. But still, God gives it freely to us. And for us as Christians, this is not the message, the heart of the gospel, that while we are still sinners... Christ atoned for our sins and paid the price for us. For some of us gathered here today, when we are confronted by God's holiness, when we are confronted by God's goodness, we feel a lot like Isaiah. We feel this tremendous weight upon our shoulders, all of our wrongdoings in life stacking up one by one, all the guilt, all the shame that we carry with us. But as we come to look at the cross, we do not see condemnation from God, but instead we find his grace instead. Jesus does not turn away from us, nor does Jesus turn, sorry, Jesus not, does not turn us away, nor does Jesus turn away from us. Rather, Jesus comes to us, dies for us, and now he calls us as his own brothers and sisters. And this is the good news, the beautiful news of the gospel. Now, having journeyed alongside Isaiah from conviction to cleansing, we now see ourselves at the very end of this drama. As Oscar Schindler was called into action when he saw the stark realities of the Holocaust, Isaiah also begins to be called into action after his encounter with God's holiness and also his encounter with God's forgiveness and grace as Isaiah's sins are taken away. In verse 8, we, we actually reach this moment when the Lord finally speaks. This is the first time we hear him speak. And he says this, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And Isaiah, obviously, he responds, Here am I, send me. After receiving, after encountering God's holiness, confessing his sin, and receiving forgiveness, Isaiah hears the voice of God, and Isaiah hears God ask a very, very simple question. Whom shall I send? and who will go for us? And the thing that kind of always perplexed me was the fact that God has to even phrase this as a question to begin with, right? God is the king of the universe, the literal creator. He has the right to command Isaiah to go and to do God's bidding. 
But God doesn't do that, right? God doesn't say, Isaiah, you go do this, you do that. Rather, we see God extend an invitation, and he asks, whom shall I send? And by doing so, we dig even deeper into God's character, and we finally begin to see who he really is. We see that God's heart is actually a relational heart. He desires to have a relationship with other people. God wants his people to join him relationally in his work, not out of compulsion, not out of guilt, but out of a willing heart. This is the same God who desired a relationship, and so he came from heaven to walk down on earth with Adam and Eve in the garden. The same God who spoke to Moses as a friend and who through Jesus invites all of us to call him as Abba, Father, as our Father, God wants us to partner alongside him in mission. And just as God's forgiveness of Isaiah's sin was instantaneous, we actually see that Isaiah's response back to God, God's question is instantaneous as well. Without delay, without hesitation, Isaiah speaks out and he says, here am I, send me. Isaiah joyfully and willingly desires to do God's will. Isaiah doesn't know what this call will involve. Isaiah doesn't know where God is about to send him. All Isaiah knows is the one who is calling him. And for Isaiah, that's enough. And every time I I read this, I'm just so overwhelmed by how beautiful this picture is that it reminds me that this is what our response to God should look like as well. We have seen God's holiness through the law. We have confessed our sins and we have received his grace through Jesus Christ, his son. And as God now calls, we now have the opportunity, the privilege to join him in his work in this world. Not because he needs us, but because he desires to be with us. Not because we have something to offer, but because God has something to give to the world. And so for us gathered here today, the voice of the Lord still rings out, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And how will we today respond to such a call? We look at our lives. We look at the radical forgiveness of sins. And like Schindler, we also see a world overcome with grief and sadness and tragedy. How will we respond today? Will we step up today and join God in his redemptive work in the world? Will we have the courage to step outside of our comfort zones, even if we do not know where God will take us or whom he's calling us to speak to? Will we take risks for the sake of the gospel and say back to our Father, here am I, send me. Brothers and sisters, we have all inherited uh, the most precious gift of all, And let us not only be willing, but also let us desire to share that gift with all who have ears to hear, to partner with God, to save our families, to save our community, and to save, literally, the entire world, to bring joy in a world ruled by sadness, to overcome evil with goodness, and to preach to all people that the deep chasm between them and God has now been overcome through Christ, that all people have the opportunity to finally find rest for their souls. Now, as we're about to enter into a period of prayer, let's take some time first to confess our own sins. None of us here are perfect, not even me, not even the greatest prophets of God in the Old Testament. 
And as we receive God's forgiveness of sin, let us hear also God's invitation to join him in his mission. So why don't we come together for a time of prayer? Heavenly Father, as we gather here today um, as your body, as your people, um, I want to first come before you and say, I'm sorry. In the face of your holiness, I, in the face of your holiness, I can't stand to even look at myself. I cannot stand the sin and the shame in my life. I cannot stand that I consistently cannot do good. I'm ashamed that I cannot be all you, all you ask me to be, God. Um, Father, here you are, not to turn us away, but to call us to you. You've washed us clean through the blood of your son. You've given us the forgiveness of sin, and now you even call us as your own children. Lord, who, who are we? You love us so much. But today, we also hear your call. We hear you asking each and every single one of us today, whom shall I send? And Lord, let our answer be me. Send me. I don't know, Father, where I'm going to go or whom I'm to serve or who I need to talk to, but Lord, all I know is that you are enough for me. Where you send, Father, I will go. So I open my life to you today. I vacate the throne of my heart so that you can sit in it. We love you and we praise you. In your most precious son's name we pray. Amen.